Now, before we get into the rest of the interview, I want to make a few comments. As I've had more conversations with people around the world about the issue of freely giving gospel ministry and the stance that I hold that ministry should be supported, not sold, I've run into a few common threads, so let me share those with you. The first is that people, even world-class intelligent scholars, have no biblical arguments for disagreeing with me so far. Everyone has pragmatic or emotional arguments, but so far no one has any biblical arguments. And this, I suspect, is perhaps because there are none. I'm very interested to hear some complex or compelling biblical arguments if anyone is willing to put them forward, but so far no one has been up to the task. So I'd like to suggest that a lot of people are letting their thinking about selling ministry be driven by the world rather than by Scripture. Second, when people hear me talk about these things, many seem unable to listen to what I'm actually saying. They assume that what I'm saying is that all people who engage in ministry should never receive money and should be dying of poverty and starvation. So let me say again, I believe gospel ministry should be supported, supported with actual money, but not sold, not charged for, not put a price tag on it. So let me say that again. I believe gospel ministry should be supported, not sold. It's a very simple distinction that for some reason people often refuse to hear and then assume something totally irrelevant to the whole discussion. Now, third, I'd like to suggest that it's not a very serious argument to simply dismiss the example of Jesus and Paul as irrelevant and non-prescriptive to believers today. This is another thing I've run into. If you want to say that Jesus' command to freely give in Matthew 10 has zero implications for present-day ministry, you have to give some serious reasons for why that's a serious hermeneutic. And if you're still convinced that Jesus and Paul's examples have no bearing on your life and on the church today, I'd encourage you to at least figure out where in Scripture we find these guardrails for money and ministry. If we don't find them in the example of Jesus and his own words— and in the example of Paul and his own words regarding these things, then I would just encourage you to at least figure out where in Scripture are there any guardrails for money and ministry. If there are no guardrails in the Bible regarding these things, then we have no answer to the prosperity preachers. And I would hope that everyone listening to this podcast would basically take it for granted that the prosperity gospel is a damaging and hateful lie and false teaching. So it's important to be able to show why it's unbiblical to sell prayers, for example, to sell prayers for people, or charge money for admission to a church worship service. If if we can't show that, then what are we doing? (laughs) You know, Obviously, there are no direct commands in Scripture regarding these things, right? There is no command from Jesus, do not charge anyone to pray for them. 
So you would have to base any conviction you have about this off of biblical principles, which may not obviously be prescriptive. So I would strongly suggest that it would be pretty sad and disgraceful if we as the church end up with no way to scripturally condemn the selling of prayers or the selling of baptism, for example. If we can't condemn such basic abuses, then we're not actually paying attention to the very fabric and spirit of God's word, in my opinion. Yet this is precisely where everyone I have talked to so far who disagrees with a biblical prohibition of selling ministry ends up. That is, they're unable to tell me from Scripture why it's not okay to charge someone money for baptism. So finally, I'd like to be clear that this challenge to the church to give freely isn't adversarial at all. Exhortation of brothers and sisters in Christ shouldn't be always conflated with picking a fight, even though it often is. So raising public awareness of places where massive public ministries seem to be unintentionally out of step with Scripture is not adversarial. It's what we do as Christians. We speak truth and love. We're constantly seeking reform and to help one another not be squeezed into the mold of the spirit of our age and conform to the pattern of this world. And I think it's worth serious consideration that maybe, just maybe, the most wealthy civilization in all of human history, the most materialistic society in all of human history, would be blind or self-deluding when it comes to the commercialization of Christianity? At the very least, I think it would be worth searching our hearts very carefully about. So I hope it's been clear throughout the various podcast episodes I've done on this topic that most people are well-meaning. I believe that, that most people are well-meaning when they sell ministry. I'm not trying to demonize anyone, but at the same time, I hope everyone understands that in order to turn the tide of what is now a massive, institutional, respectable way of doing ministry, i.e. selling it, It's going to take firm conviction to turn this tide. So please don't mistake firm conviction for hatred of everyone who disagrees with me. That's a mistake I see all too often within evangelicalism. The Reformation wouldn't have happened out of weak conviction. And the gigantic scale of the commercialization of Christianity that we see around us requires nothing short of a Reformation-sized response. There's a lot at stake. And one prayer I need to pray for myself more often is, Lord, keep me from being a Christian who loves to learn but hates to change. That said, let's begin part two of our interview with our friend John. Let's talk about a more positive one. How about the literal standard version? Mm, yep. So this, Probably most people have never heard of. This is one of the uh, newest English translations available, actually, and just released in 2020, which may have been bad because everyone was focused on COVID at that time and may not have seen it. But yeah, it's an interesting translation. 
So in general, there's, and again, you'd probably know more about this, but there's different sources people use for the New Testament of translations. The LSV is based on the Byzantine manuscripts, whereas other translations, mm-hmm. usually the ones that we more commonly use, such as the NOV, ESV, etc., use Alexandrian manuscripts. So it's released under a Creative Commons license. Uh, again, you can actually, when you're in copy.church, it links to all the licenses. It's called a buy SA license, which means you can do whatever you want with it, but if you share it, you have to share it the same license. In other words, you have to share it freely as well, just as you received it. I give it an 11 out of 12. The only reason it loses a mark is because of attribution. And now this isn't, again, it's not a big deal, but as I mentioned, there are situations where you don't want to attribute who the creator is, such as when you're printing a Bible verse on a mug or creating uh, an image or an artwork. You don't want to put like legal text within the image. It just ruins the aesthetics. So there are situations where you don't want to attribute people and you're not trying to, you know, claim it as your own or anything like that. Mm. And so... While I appreciate the condition to always attribute and has good intentions, I think it's best if even that is dropped, uh, that uh, things are released in the public domain is much better. And also, I would say the impression that it gives to a lot of unbelievers who see these kinds of messages as probably a little petty to have this on a sacred text that was that is divine revelation and have this kind of fine print. Yeah, and I find that a lot of this with worship music as well, at least if I was to create a worship song, I wouldn't want my name on a slide at every church service that's singing my song when they're trying to worship God. And that's my, my personal opinion. But yeah, I think attribution is important, but you don't have to legally require it. One of the things I recommend with licensing is to always go with public domain. But it doesn't mean that you can't recommend make recommendations or that people are going to be unreasonable. So for example, just because I'm not going to sue you because you didn't attribute me, doesn't mean that I don't expect you to, you know, explain where work came from. If you're if you're using someone else's work, there's appropriate ways to say who the author is, whether it's at the bottom of the page or whether it's in the actual text. You know, especially when you're writing right. an essay, it's very important that you attribute where ideas come from as a matter of because that's what's appropriate appropriate in academia. But you don't have to sue people or have the right to sue them. You can just uh, it's a reasonable social expectation. Yeah. But but when we're talking about sacred texts, I've read articles online about you know of lost people talking about this issue, you know, especially people who are passionate about public domain things and open access. I think it is very confusing when we as Christians we say this is God's word, but the fine print says no, it's actually it's crossways or whoever else's. They see a sacred text and they, they expect it to be unique in that area, right? A sacred text that's divine revelation ought to come across as unique and not with the same kind of petty regulations. of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> it reminds me of a few jokes I've seen in the past, but one of which being, you know, the thing about copyright is that as long as the owner is alive, it's under copyright, but if the owner dies, then eventually it's going to go out of copyright. But, you know, if we really believe God is alive, then why is he not still the owner of the copyright of these texts? (laughs) There's actually a Bible translation called God's Word, which is very ironic because it's it's still very much copyrighted. Oh, my. (laughs) While we're talking about humor, definitely check out on copy.church 
the memes that our brother has put together. I appreciate them. Maybe not everyone will appreciate them. If you don't have a sense of humor or you're offended by some of these things, uh, I get it. Don't go to this page. But for those of you who want a good laugh and maybe a little prick in your conscience, check those out. I highly recommend them. Yeah. So. Yeah, I often find that if you, you're not the kind of person who likes to read a whole bunch of text, sometimes just reading for those memes can help you really understand why these issues are important. And I'm not a I'm not a comedian. I, I barely ever uh, make any jokes. But it really wasn't hard because all I did with those was I just applied the same principles we do today to Jesus and Paul's time, and it was immediately hilarious because it was just so ridiculous. Because <laughs> uh, that's that's the thing about exactly. all of these rules is they really are quite ridiculous. And when you you imagine them in Jesus's time, you can really see that. Yeah, it shatters all of the beautiful things you imagined about the first century church. <laughs> if you if you import if you you retroactively pour out all of our restrictions onto the early church, wow, it doesn't seem so great anymore. <laughs> Let's jump to the King James version. Every the, the most popular version still in the US. I think most people talked about this before on the podcast, most people do think Oh, well, this is the most free version out there. There's no copyright, all this. Yeah, so the KGV scores are free out of 12. So that's not very high, yeah. And the reason why is because, I think as you mentioned earlier on this podcast, the KGV is under copyright. It's under the British Crown. And in the UK, that I was reading their copyright law legislation, and basically the Crown sits above common copyright law. So in other words, copyright law doesn't apply to the Crown. And so because the Crown, the British royalty, is the owner of the KGV, it is forever going to be copyrighted and will never the copyright will never expire. And they do enforce the copyright in the UK. And so because of that, I base mm-hmm. the rating on what happens in the UK. So that's why it gets a 3 out of 12. You know, if you are using the KGV sure. in another country, such as the US, then you know, technically it would have a higher score, you'd be able to use it more freely. But that that's not necessarily because the British Crown and the owner of the KGV wants you to be able to do that. Rather, they just don't have the jurisdiction. So <laughs> it's not that they apply copyright to the UK and they say to everyone else, oh, please use it freely. No, they just don't have the ju- jurisdiction to uh, sue people <laughs> because copyright law varies by country. Yeah, they probably have better things to be doing anyway than trying to find ways to sue little denominations and who knows what else, publishing houses. So what are the things that it misses on? You can't share unlimited verses, of course. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much all of all of the most common translations we use are the same. If you go through the lists, ESV, NLT, and New King James Version, CSV, NASB, all of those ones that you'd be very familiar with, they all score either a one or two or a three. And so there's only very slight variation between them. And so when it comes to the King James Version, the reason why it scores slightly better than the other translations is because you can download it anonymously. And so in in U Version, you can download it offline without handing over your personal information. Now, that might just be because, you know, it's fair use in the States, and so that's why version didn't need to worry about it. Uh, it's not necessarily the intention of the copyright owner, but yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Okay, so this is great. This is really helpful, I think, for a lot of people who have not sat down and 
thought about these things. What else should we know about your site? Is, are there some other things that you want to highlight or walk us through? Yeah, so I guess very briefly before we leave this page, the only two translations I know of that get a perfect score of 12 out of 12 is the uh, World English Bible and the Open English Bible. They are very good translations in many ways. The real struggle we've had in having a free English translation that uh, everyone can use freely is trust. And so although there are a lot of people that do trust those translations, they haven't gone mainstream. So we don't have a whole stack of churches relying on those translations. Rather, it's usually just individuals and their personal preference. And so what the the future of the church really needs is for an English translation that is based on the latest manuscripts and has a team of people behind it. Because even though, you know, trust doesn't necessarily mean quality, so just because you trust something doesn't mean it's uh, high quality. To get churches on board, I think practically speaking, the only way we can move everyone to a free English translation in in the future is if there is that level of trust. Yeah, we're still lacking that. So that's mm-hmm. still a need. There's still a need for a, a new English translation that is highly accurate and highly trusted. In terms of the rest of the site, I try to word it in as friendly a way as possible that's easy to understand for everyone. Basically, just go into the menu and pick topics that interest you. If you're someone who's been listening to this and you have a whole bunch of objections and you're like, what about this? What about this? Or, there's actually a page for that. And so there's a good chance whatever objection you have, it already has an explanation. So check out that that page. Is good. Yeah, so let's let's actually let's actually jump into alternate funding. This is maybe something we haven't talked about enough. So on this podcast, you know, we've talked about the principle, but when it comes to the pragmatics, a lot of people are like, "Well, okay, that's a really nice idea, but practically, how does that work out? I need a game plan if I'm going to make this happen uh, in my ministry or in my publishing house or whatever." So you have some good ideas on here. Could you walk us through that page? Yeah, sure. So again, as you mentioned, like pragmatics, often when I talk to people about this, the immediate response is, yeah, but how are we going to pay for it? Or how are we going to get paid? How are ministers going to, how are people creating resources going to survive? They need to, you know, feed their families, etc. But yeah, there's so Mm -hmm. many different ways that you can fund these things in ways that aren't commercial and don't violate principle free giving, the Dorian principle. And I split the page into two groups. Uh, One is ones that are uh, methods of funding that are compatible with giving freely and ones that ones that Mm -hmm. aren't but are still better than nothing kind of thing but in terms of uh, ones that are compatible firstly you know church-based funding so getting your church or a group of churches to fund a new project and churches are the best example of you know this this kind of funding done right because for thousands of years churches haven't had to sell ministry they haven't had to charge entrance fees uh, you haven't had to pay the pastor for their sermon. Giving has always, almost always been voluntary. I know there are exceptions and there's lots of historical exceptions you can come across, but for, for most of history, churches have run by this and this is how millions of churches run still today. The idea that we can't fund ministry through donations and through means that still allow us to freely give is obviously proven false by the church. But, you know, there's other more modern trends such as crowdfunding, giving you the finance you need to then release what you're creating for free. Taking donations directly. This is what I obviously do when I start my company. I take donations. 
but also you know thinking outside the box and using more cost-effective distribution rather than you know paying for an expensive venue for a conference why not just borrow the a church property ask a church to host a conference we don't have to have flashy you know the latest flashy rooms and things we can mm-hmm. it's not that's not how the new the early church uh, did things <laughs> they did they made use of whatever they had and technology just makes the things so much easier so you know it costs nothing to give books to or videos to millions of people it can cost you absolutely nothing um, there's free storage available um, all over the place and I think that that's the real thing that catches the current publishing ministry out is that in the past they would be able to say well we need to we need to charge for resources so that we can pay for the printing and pay for the production and everything now we're in the digital age and you can actually release things for free online and still they're not doing it it shows that it's not just about that i will add in fact that the selling of digital books is hundreds of times more profitable than physical books <laughs> so it's it's a hard one to give up, you know, the temptation of the flesh when you're like, wow, it cost me nothing to distribute this, but I can still charge 9.99 for it. Wow, who could who could pass up that opportunity, right? It's hard. Yeah, yeah, and we haven't had a solid theology around this stuff, which I think is why a lot of there's been a lot of confusion. But uh, thanks to Conley Owens' work, we do have a solid theology, and this stuff is is wrong. It violates scripture, and so you know you don't necessarily have to make a profit. Like for example, I'll give an example regarding the Christian music industry. If we do switch to a model of free giving, then yeah, how are how are full time artists gonna be paid and i guess my response is like do we actually need full that many full-time artists for the church do we need that for mission do we need that for getting the gospel out do we actually need full-time artists or can they write songs on the weekend and then give them freely because a lot of people do that a lot of people you know they're one of the most popular christian music producers in in sydney australia the creators are the lead singer is a teacher so it's his day job just being a teacher and he wrote the music on the weekend he wrote the music in his free time and they're one of the most popular um, bands here you know always have to make money there's other ways to do it right and i can testify to that i'm a bible translator i teach hebrew but Sometimes in the evenings I write songs, sometimes in the morning while I'm taking care of my daughter, I'll put something, some scripture to music and record it in the evening and it's it's not it's not complicated. You can do that and then immediately bless millions of people around the world with what you've recorded for free. Upload it to Spotify for free and it's amazing. It's it really doesn't have to be like, oh, do I need to buy a tour bus now? And do I need to buy a tour manager, or pay a tour manager and all of that stuff? So I, I think also a great example is William Cooper and John Newton. And if you know the story of how so many of their hymns were born, it was just John Newton trying to help William Cooper come out of depression and giving him something to do and doing a fun thing together as an activity to bring his soul out of the darkness and say, hey, let's let's each write a hymn a week or whatever their agreement was for a time. And so many of our great hymns were born out of that. We have these great examples where you can you can do these things to bless the people of God. And it doesn't have to be like, oh, well, how am I going to finance it? It's just do it to get out of your, your depression even. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so approaching the more kind of incompatible ends, you know, and getting a bit more pragmatic, you know, if we're going to release, for example, a book for free and it's going to go to millions of people, very easy to do digitally, a bit harder to do in print. And so obviously it is going to cost money to print books. And so this is where I guess I'd encourage people to consider just if you do have to charge for something, just charge for the production costs and raise money uh, or use other means for the rest of it. And so if it costs you, you work out how much it costs to print a thousand books and maybe it comes down to one or two or three dollars per book, then charge that amount, whatever it costs you to break even in right. that manner. And rather than and make it clear that you're not charging for the teaching. I, I got this idea from um, Conley, I think, in this book. But there's other, yeah, there's other means that I wouldn't say are compatible with freely giving because they still have a commercial side to them. But for example, you can say pay if you can, you know, rather than keeping a copyright license, copyright on your book and saying, basically, I'm going to sue you if you break it. Why don't you just take off the copyright, release the resource freely, and then just say pay if you can. If if you're able to pay for it, if you have the means, if you're in the financial position to do so, please pay this amount. But if not, please just use it. Don't let there be any kind of barrier to using it. You sure. uh, you could use different licenses. So there's some licenses that prevent commercial use. There's some licenses that have different rules about them. And you could apply some restrictions, such as forbidding commercial use, but not others. This is one that I think a lot of people should consider. If they're really about doing this stuff for the sake of the kingdom, then consider a temporary restriction. Consider charging for your resource until you break even. If it cost you, I don't know, maybe you took a year off and it cost you however much you want, I don't know, 60000 a year or whatever you mm-hmm. need to look after your family. Say it costs you that much to develop the resource. Well, set a limit then. So once you get that money back, release it for free because then you've been reimbursed. You've been paid right. for your labor. You know, the lab, I wouldn't interpret it this way, but if you interpret, you know, the worker deserves his wages and that gives you a right to charge for it, then, all right, we'll get paid for your wages and don't get paid more. <laughs> so don't start profiting from it. Right. That's a really good suggestion. And I, I just want to reiterate to the listeners, these things we're going through are intended for mainly the people who aren't willing to dive all the way in, maybe. Maybe you resonate with some of these things, but you still have misgivings or you're unsure if it's really solidly biblical and you're from your perspective, etc. But you, you see the need and you see some inconsistencies or some conviction about how things are going with the status quo. This is kind of a mediating position or maybe a more moderate position that you could start getting your feet wet and then maybe you could go further. But these are good first steps for those people who are still very tied up or maybe stuck in this rut of what we've created in the commercialized mm-hmm. Christendom of the yeah. West. Yeah, and you know, most people don't live by this. So you think of all of the Christian music artists. I don't think we've actually really thought much about it, but you know, these these guys aren't non profit. <laughs> so there's no non there's no non profit declaration in their royalty agreements. There's no Authors as well, writers of Bible commentaries, all sorts of things. There's there's no non-profit, as far as I can tell, maybe there are some, but as far as I can tell, people don't have non-profit clauses in these agreements. And so if the book makes 
$10 or if it makes $10 million, there's nothing to stop that. A lot of people would say, you know, I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it for God. You know, that's easy to say when you're only earning, you know, so much. Uh, say you've only partly got back what it costs you to make it. But then when you end up making millions of dollars from it, have people then said, okay, I'm earning enough. I'm going to start giving this away for free. No, I don't see that happening. Rather, what I see happening is some people just become very rich. And so we, we can all think of prosperity preachers and things like people like that that have mm -hmm. become very, very wealthy off their royalties for their yeah. books or their music. Or the alternative is that people that do have good consciences end up setting either doing it themselves or setting up some kind of council or something to manage those royalties and they use it to invest back into ministry. And so people, yeah. uh, Francis Chan, John Piper, I think people like that do this. So a lot, a lot of money through book royalties, mm -hmm. but then they invest that money back into ministry. But then, you know, what's happening is there's not much accountability for that. And so it's great for the people that do it, but you know, what's to stop people how do we know that's happening? How do we know that this money is actually going back into ministry or not? But yeah, probably the last the last one I want to mention probably is the is translation. We have so so many resources in English in the West. So many Bible commentaries, books. Yeah, just endless the amount of resources we have. But only a tiny, tiny fraction of those will end up being translated, and probably only to a handful of languages. Now there's over 7,000 languages in the world. People that decide, say, you know, we want to manage the translation process ourselves to make sure that the translations are accurate and don't mislead anyone. Well, are you going to hire someone, like a few people full-time to manage all those requests? Because if your resource really does, you know, take off and everyone wants to use it, then there's no way you're going to have the capacity to manage that process yourself. There's 7,000 languages yeah. in the world. And even translating into one language yeah. is a big deal almost all resources won't ever end up being translated. And so what I'd really encourage everyone, almost without exception, to do is to apply a free translate license to their resource if, that's, if you don't release it for free. So again, these are I, I recommend releasing stuff to the public domain. But if you're not going to do that, at least put a free translate license on it so that anyone can translate it if they want to. And if we did that for every resource that we have, uh, which we're not going to, you know, we're not making money off these translations anyway. So why not? Why not release them to everyone else yeah. in other languages for free? Amen. Yeah, that's that's probably something that most people have never heard of. This free translate license. There is a link to find out more about that on the site. So go check it out if that's something you're hearing for the first time about. That that would that would open up my job, my line of work here in Bible translation in Mexico, that would clear up probably 90% or more of the issues that we face in Bible translation, trying to get resources in Spanish for translators and all of that. Oh, that would be such a breath of fresh air. you know. And that's not a huge step for people. Seriously, you're not going to make a bunch of money if you translate your resource into Spanish or into Hindi or other these other languages, if that's what you're holding out for, it, don't deceive yourself. Even if you somehow are able to control your translation into Spanish, let's say, and you're able to totally lock it down. And this is what I've seen a lot of people do, you know, because they know that if they publish something digitally in Spanish, it will get pirated because that is the culture in Latin America. Nobody really buys books 
if they're available digitally, they'll be pirated or they'll be scanned as PDFs and circulated even between seminaries and Bible schools and stuff like that. And so so even if you, you pull out all the stops, you're like, oh, we're going to make this as hard for people to pirate as possible. So we're not even going to release an ebook in Spanish, blah, 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 blah. Well, first of all, you're not going to make any money. And the reason is because you locked it down so much. And so, and, and the, but I have seen people, I have seen people, many people doing this where there is an ebook in English, but there is not an ebook in Spanish. You can only buy the hard copy. And they know that because they know that it's going to get pirated if they don't. And so their resource is even more artificially scarce and it's even less used and it makes them even less money. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so basically all these laws and copywriting conditions, the people they mainly affect are people that actually have good intentions, people that are actually trying to share the gospel, mainly missionaries, uh, people like that. Um, because, you know, the bad guys, the bad guys don't care about copyright anyway. So, you know, the bad guys are going to, it doesn't matter if you copyright it or not, the bad guys are going to abuse it. Um, and so the only people that you restrict are the people with consciences, the people that you know, read that license that says they can't translate it and can't use it. And they think, oh, I have to obey this, like, because I love God. And Right. Yeah. And I would add that a lot of the good people internationally are going to do it anyway. And, and, and why is that? Because it's just not cultural. Like, you're never going to find a single church in Latin America that's paying for CCLI license for, for singing songs. Like, we sang, well, I went to church the other day and and we sang songs translated from Hillsong they are not paying they're not putting any kind of information on these powerpoints of the lyrics they're not that does not happen in Latin America i would venture to guess it does not happen in, in most of the rest of the world so are we going to say well these are just evil evil latin americans and and they're just out there they're the bad guys you know no not really it's just not even on their radar, to be honest, because, I mean, when you think about the logic, a childlike logic, you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing in the kingdom of God is becoming more like children. And the childlike logic is like, this is a song to worship God. I don't need anything else. Like, I'm just going to sing here and, and worship God. I don't need anything else. I don't need anybody's permission to do that. And obviously, the assumption would be a childlike assumption goodwill assumption would be the writer of that song also wants me to worship God freely. You know, obviously he wouldn't have written a worship song if he didn't want me to be able to just sing it in church whenever I wanted. That would be a a very logical childlike assumption for, I think, most people in the world. And and that's why this happens, you know? Yeah, that that really um, brings me to one of the last things I probably um, want to talk about which is a movement I'm trying to start with this site to break free from worship licenses. At the moment, as you mentioned, like a lot of people <laughs> don't pay attention yeah. to this. Another thing, thing I, I share on the site is that we're actually making the lawbreakers. So, you know, even though they don't have understand copyright or real they don't even realize they're breaking the law by maintaining our restrictive licenses we're making them criminals in the sight of the law for no reason just for worshiping god but what i'd love to see and i think is possible is 
for a new generation of musicians. Not necessarily just in, in English, could be other languages as well, but especially in English where the copyright is so restricted. A new generation of musicians to give music freely so that we can have a collection of, it might be a modest collection, nothing like there is at the moment with the Christian music industry, but it could just be 100 or 200 or so songs that are free to sing, and then that will allow churches to break free from licenses. Because at the moment, if you want to sing modern music, you need a license to do so. I'll probably just pause there and let that sink in for a few people. You need a license to worship God if you want to use modern music. And, you know, my generation, I didn't grow up with the KGV. That's not my language. (laughs) Archaic old hymns are not my language. Uh, Modern English is my language. That's my heart language. And if I want to worship God in a group environment, I can't legally do it at the moment because almost every single song is copyrighted and you need a license to sing them in group environments and in church environments. Yeah, and I would add that many of these songs that were composed by fellow believers in Christ took less time and effort than it takes for all of these churches to actually get the permission to sing them. So let that sink in. I'm a songwriter. I know exactly what this takes. I, I can write a worship song in 10 minutes. I can write a worship song in an hour. I can write a worship song in two hours. Or I could write a more refined one in, in maybe 10 hours. Some of the best songs are probably written in 10 minutes. I'm talking about the, the really good ones. And this goes for popular music as well, secular music. You hear these stories about Taylor Swift you know, writing some of her best hits in, in 10, 15 minutes, right? Is, is it really worth... I, I spent 10 minutes of my day in the evening off work writing the song to the Lord... Is it really a godly thing to then in turn say, okay, all of the churches of the world now must get permission and pay me for every time they sing this song? That seems so extremely absurd and I would say sinful that it's hard to fathom, you know, when you put it into perspective. And put my name on the slide so I get credit. Yeah, my, my name must be glorified. While we sing, not to us, not to us, but to your name, be the glory, make sure my name is on there. <laughs> and also report when you do so. So you actually have to uh, report when you sing my song so that I can get paid royalties. So um, imagine if the government was doing that, <laughs> you know, if we had to report and when we're singing and have to pay a license to do so. But because it's done by a Christian organization, we, we don't care as much. Right. If if Big Brother were demanding that of us, all the Texans would get out their guns right now and there would be another civil war. It, I guarantee you. So, yeah, I mean, it is so astonishing that we've come this far. No one is saying anything hardly. I, I mean, I never had a discussion about this, the absurdity of this at my conservative Reformed Baptist church back in Kentucky with very high-minded, very intelligent, you know, full of PhDs and people getting MDivs at the seminary there. Nobody just sat back and said, hey, maybe we should push back on the absurdity of this. Yeah, well, I think the problem is that we've had this assumption that people have good intentions. And so uh, whenever we see a famous speaker, a famous um, writer releasing something, we very rarely we do question. But when we do question, you know, should they 
how much are they making from this? Should they sell it? Uh, we also we always judge by intentions, and so the leaders we respect, we're thinking, oh, they're using it for good purposes. Whereas the you know the more heretical leaders, the more prosperity teachers, we're like, oh, they're using it. They've got bad intentions, but. Often both are getting rich, and sometimes to the same extent. There's a lot of wealthy, well-respected leaders out there. I think that's the problem that we've just limited to intention, and this is something I think we should discuss more as well. But when we look at the Bible and we look at those passages about、um, having the right to financial support, we what we don't realize is that when you're selling ministry, you're adding a whole bunch of other rights in there as well. So you're not just talking about the right to be financially supported. You're also putting in the right to deny people ministry if they don't pay you. You're putting in the right to prevent people from sharing your resource. You're putting the right to prevent people from adapting it to their situation and, and improving it, and also the right to stop them translating it for other people as well. Yeah, we talk about financial support, but actually, if you're selling, you're adding a whole bunch of other rights. It's not just the right to financial support. Yeah. And those rights are not substantiated in Scripture. And so, if you want to look at Paul's teaching, then yes, absolutely, it affirms the right to financial support. But show me in Scripture where it it gives you the right to deny people ministry if they don't pay you, because I don't see that right in Scripture. <laughs> yeah, especially to sing a song to the Lord. If they don't pay you, that that I think it, it brings it to such a level of of absurdity to the average observer that it's hard to miss. You know, if I were to spend ten minutes writing a song, and it makes me a millionaire, it, that's a slap in the face to all of my brothers in Christ who are working hard, forty hours a week at UPS. You know, building houses, all of these kinds of jobs that they do not get paid. That kind of salary for ten minutes of work—it it really creates this kind of elitist crowd of Christians who have figured out a way to milk the rest of the church for lots of money for very little work because it's passive income. That's what it's called. That's what the world calls it, and we—the world loves the idea of passive income. It is not something that the Bible teaches us that we all deserve. You know that. That is what everyone has the right to: ten minutes of work, and then you don't have to work another day in your life because of that. That I don't think that is what Paul would endorse. Yeah, and that, that's speaking of Paul endorsing.、Uh, that's what bothers me the most is when people talk about Paul, Paul's writings, and that he would justify this kind of stuff. It's I just imagine what an insult that is to Paul. <laughs> I imagine what he would say. You know, someone who was beaten and stoned and went in need and had to work sometimes to get by, and then to see his writings used to justify selling ministry. I imagine he's quite upset about that. Absolutely. Yeah, and once again, more about that in the meme section on the website. So don't miss that. <laughs> This this is such a good conversation as you can probably hear in my voice. This is something I'm passionate about, and I could go on for another like five hours, but we should probably draw this to a close. So everyone who's listening, please, 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 check out this website. Give it your full uninterrupted attention for a while. You know, grab a cup of coffee and sit down and carefully work through it. This is something that is worthy of your time. To understand and to absorb into your blood and share it with others. Thank you, John, for for coming on and sharing this with us. I really appreciate the work you've done 
over the last seven years in thinking about these things and putting this together. Mm, yeah, no problem. And yeah, like I just wrote, like to reiterate, please share it because <clears throat> I think as Andrew's mentioned a few times, people just start talking about this and until we start talking about it, things probably won't change. So it's really down to you guys listening and ordinary Christians to start raising this, raise it with your pastor, raise it with your teachers, get them talking about it. Yeah. And think about it this way. The more you share this message, the more you help get the word of God into people's hands. So maybe you don't have any money to donate to Bible translation directly or to any other kind of ministry. Well, just sharing this is going to maybe do more than than your $10 a month or your $100 a month to a ministry because you'll be opening these things in a way that will potentially help them go viral and that's what we want we want the kingdom of god to go viral and this is and this is definitely the future i honestly believe there is going to be a new generation of christians hopefully within my lifetime but there's going to be a generation that have free access to scripture that can freely share it legally and they're going to look back on our time and they're going to be shocked that we put up with this put up with the restricting of sharing God's word, sharing scripture. It's uh, people are going to look back at this time of shame. And that's honestly what I believe we're going to get there and we're already getting there. And you're going to hear from someone on this podcast soon, Alan Bunning, who's made the Greek new Testament free. And that's just the first step. 